Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Every fear that you have is born out of a positive desire. You could almost say a love. So if you took any fear that you have right here, if you could turn it around, you would see that what's fueling that fear is something you want positively. Fear is negative, but there's something you want that's fueling that. So if there are any here who have a fear of heights, what is a fear of heights? Except positively, your desire not to fall from a height, <laughs> your desire for comfort and for life and for safety. That's what makes the fear of height. If you didn't want those things, you wouldn't be afraid of heights, you see. It's a bit like a teeter-totter, and if you put your desire on one side, it pushes up a fear, and all of your fears are that way. So there are many who are afraid of public embarrassment, probably most of us, but why? Because we want public honor. <laughs> or again, some of you fear Losing the close relationships in your life. Why? Because you love the joy those relationships bring. And you can multiply this on forever. Many of them have to do with death because we want to live. Behind any fear that you have, if you dig long enough, you'll find that there's a desire or even a love that you have that's really the source of the fear that you're experiencing. Let me just give you one example. Think about false teaching. Before you love Christ, and a love for Christ and a desire for Him is not a part of what's happening in your heart, when your heart is still stony and cold, you don't care about false teaching really, because a fear of false teaching that might take you away from Christ requires that you want Christ. So if you can remember back before you knew Christ, or for those of you who are present and don't yet know Christ in truth, when you think of false teaching, it might be interesting to think about, but it's not something you fear. It's not something you look out for regularly. But when you come to love Christ, then it is. It's the other side of it. Outside of Christ, false teaching might not matter any more than true teaching does. But when you're in Christ, you can see past that white robe that false teaching puts on as an angel of light and you see dead men's bones and shudder because you love what's true. We should feel like Jude, Jesus' half-brother, who wrote an entire letter about false teaching and then concludes it with this command to others show mercy who are getting over into false teaching. Show them mercy with Fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. But if it's true, then, that you should fear false teaching, and it's true that every fear you have is just the other side of a love or a desire, then what that's going to mean is though you should be afraid of false teaching, that should not be the dominant theme of your life. Because that's just a consequence of something more important. Namely, a love for Christ, joy in Christ, that's what your life's about. And therefore, false teaching makes you shudder. 
Sometimes you'll see this, not in all, but in some discernment ministries, where someone is on the hunt for every possible false teaching, and then you realize they've sort of lost the view of why we're on the hunt anyways. What's the hunt about? It's all negative. That happens sometimes in ministries or people. But our fear of false teaching that we should feel here at this church, you should feel, is the flip side of something bigger, something that's more dominant in your life. And that is a love of truth and a love of all that the truth means for you. It's your connection to Christ. You embrace the truth. It's what preserves your Christian joy, even as a Christian, because false teaching always attacks that. I think that is really the primary thing, or at least will be this morning in our discussion, that is on the other side of a fear of false teaching. It should be joy. Your craving after joy in Christ. And that makes you afraid of false teaching that would smudge the scriptures so that you can't see the goodness of the good news of the gospel as clearly. That's what false teaching does, always. Lessens your joy, increases your anxieties, places burdens on your shoulders that no one can bear. So if you surrender to false teaching, even as a believer, if you start to be influenced by false teaching, even if you're, you're not going to lose your salvation, but your joy in your relationship with Christ will, over time, perhaps very gradually, dissipate. So this commandment we have from God, whoever loves joy, is that you? You have to fear false teaching. This is an unexpected fact. Maybe when you've thought of false teaching in the past, you've just thought of curmudgeon older people just yelling about false teaching. No, that's not it. Truth and joy go together. And this surprising fact is what we find as we come into chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. You've probably noticed that in this letter so far, Paul's not touched on false teaching. He's touched on those who were preaching to spite him, but they were still teaching the true gospel. But now we're going to have a very sudden shift in chapter 3, and it's not an accident. Paul is going to attach this fear of false teaching, look out, together with rejoice in the Lord. Let's see this, Philippians 3, the first three verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. This is a surprising turn, like I said, in Philippians, because chapter 1 was mainly about Paul, and it was mainly about how God amazingly was turning everything happening to Paul. There in Rome, in prison, with preachers trying to spite him, God was turning everything for good by his mighty right arm. Then when we got into chapter 2, Paul turns from himself and he focuses on the Philippians that he's writing to and he says, hey, you guys in Philippi, look out for each other. Don't be selfish. Don't be like the spiteful preachers back in chapter 1. 
Consider the interests of others more important than your own. That's going to be a testimony in Philippi. And Paul provided three examples of this in chapter 2. The first was Christ and the very best one. But then he also gave Timothy and Epaphroditus. That was chapter 2. Things have been so positive through chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's a reason we call this the letter of joy. Chapter 3 seems to continue that theme. Finally, we're transitioning here. Finally doesn't mean this is the end of the book because we're only halfway through. But it'd be like you saying something like in other news and then you move on to another subject. So he's transitioning. But then he says, my brothers, very warm and affectionate. And then he tells you to rejoice. You say, we know this. We've been through this for two chapters. And then he says, look out for the dogs. That is strong language and not something that we've seen so far in Philippians. Our goal today, as we begin this section with Paul, which will run through all of this chapter really, is to discover two things. First, we want to know what is the false teaching that Paul thinks it necessary to warn about. This is the what question. What is it? And the answer will be the Judaizers. Sorry if that's hard to spell. J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S. The Judaizers. That will be the answer to what it is Paul is going to warn them and you about. But then because he sticks it right next to joy in a very shocking way, after we look at that, we want to ask the why question. Why bring this up? Everything was going so nicely in this letter. Why are we going to now talk about the dogs? And the answer to that, if you want something that alliterates and sounds nice with Judaizers, you can say joy. What is it? It's the Judaizers. And why does Paul feel it necessary to warn you about it here? For the sake of your joy. So let's follow the text that way. So first, the what question. What is Paul warning against? The answer is going to be the Judaizers. And we're going to see also, though you've probably never met a Judaizer. <laughs> Maybe some of you have. You probably haven't. But the principle of what the Judaizers were continues completely unchanged today. And even stronger, probably, than it was then. The first thing we know about this error, because you're a good Berean, if you're reading this, you're trying to figure out, okay, who are the dogs? The first thing we know is in verse 1. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The first thing we know is that Paul has already written or spoken about these false teachers before to the Philippians. That would give you a hint that if you followed, would tell you who these are. Because if you look at the whole New Testament and say, what was the group? Who were the false teachers that more than any other group of false teachers, Paul had to fight against, write against, speak against his entire ministry? Who were they? You would know. It is the Judaizers. So even with the Philippians, he's already warned them about it. He's going to remind them. He wants them to keep looking out for these Judaizers. And then he goes on to describe them in verse 2. In three ways. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are these people? If you took the first two, look out for the dogs, 
and here, look out for the evildoers, that could really apply to any false teacher in the entire world. So when he says dogs, you have to put yourself back 2,000 years ago. You're thinking of house pets. You're thinking of your poodle at home. Stop thinking about that. That's not what Paul's thinking. In the ancient world and in some parts of the world today, dogs were not cute and cuddly things that you had in your house. They were vicious. They were cruel. They were starved. They were on the streets. They were the things that bite you and give you rabies. That's what a dog was. Smelly, dirty, on the streets. Keep them out there. And if you encounter one, it's to your harm probably. So when Paul uses this word dogs, those are the ideas he has in mind in that context. So it's not a pleasant thing. Returning to Jude, that letter about false teachers, Jude says of them, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So there again, the picture of an animal. This dog sees you. He's not going to ask you how you're doing on the street. He's going to bite you. And if you have food, he's going to take it and run away. (laughs) This will make sense later in chapter 3 when Paul says that their God is their belly. So there's the picture of a dog. You can't reason with a dog. Their God is their belly, their appetite. That dog's very strong language. Probably don't go running around calling people dogs even today. But you can see the fervor of what Paul is saying here about false teachers. That would apply to any false teacher. The second term that he gives, look out for the evildoers. That would apply to any false teacher as well. False teachers, as the New Testament makes clear, anywhere you go, go to 2 Peter, go to Jude, go to the words of Jesus himself, you will know a tree by its fruit. You will know false teachers by false teaching. In fact, most of the places in your New Testament that warn you about false teachers, most of the places don't go on to tell you what their false teaching is, but instead to tell you what their lives will look like. Clouds without water. Very evil, wicked, corrupt, in the era of Balaam and so forth. Of course, the tricky thing with false teachers is that nobody comes out and just says, hey, I'm a false teacher. And false teachers within Christianity do have to conceal, for the most part, not always, but do have to conceal the evil of lifestyle in order to continue a gathering. So you don't always see it right away, although often it follows after. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11 of evildoers false teachers. He says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, he continues, it's no surprise if his servants, false teachers, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But then Paul concludes, their end will correspond to their deeds. And their deeds are evil deeds. That's why he calls them Evil doers. So even if you don't always see it, because the heart's not been changed by Christ to produce good fruit, even those things that look good, there's an evil in them. And often there is a secret double life happening. So dog and evildoers. We're still investigating. Who are these Judaizers? Those two could apply to the Judaizers, but also to any false teachers. The reason we know for sure that it's Judaizers and not someone else is because of the third description he gives here. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The original language has just a single word here for that phrase, and it's katatame. 
And it sounds like another word that happens in the next verse, the word for circumcision, which is peritame. See that? Katatame, peritame. You've just changed the beginning. Paul's doing that on purpose. This is a way of poking at circumcision. So he's going to talk about we are the circumcision, peritame. He says these false teachers are like a botched circumcision, katatame. But he's putting the emphasis on the idea of circumcision. And why would he do that? He's saying this is a weird, distorted kind of circumcision. That's what these false teachers are in reality. Why turn the attention to circumcision? Because one group of false teachers in the early church were completely obsessed with the idea of circumcision and everything else that it meant. And who was that group? The Judaizers. Because circumcision in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant under Moses, and even before with Abraham, circumcision was a mark, a sign, that you were a part of the people of God. So when Jesus came in the New Testament, He fulfilled the Old Covenant for us. Fulfilled it. He kept the law. He fulfilled it for us. And this is why you and me, who are not Jewish people, most of us, maybe all of us, have equal access to God through Christ. That's the mystery of the gospel. That's the joy of it. You don't have to refrain from eating lobster or shellfish, but if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you would. Why is that? Because Christ has fulfilled that old covenant for us, and we enter in and are equally the people of God as Gentiles, non-Jews, even without being part of the old law, the law of Moses. And circumcision was the way you enter into that old covenant people by circumcising of all the males. It was a sign that you were a part of that covenant community. And consequently, under the old covenant, you also then were under the law of Moses because God gave this as a sign that you're part of the covenant community. And part of the covenant of God, the Old Testament here, was this law of Moses. The Judaizers then... When Paul refers to them, he calls them like a botched circumcision because that's what they were arguing. Everywhere that Paul would go, he would tell the Gentiles, you are now welcome to be part of the people of God. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law, its principles, absolutely. But in specific detail, you can be brought in to the people of God. And so Gentiles in large numbers were entering into the people of God. Paul was planting churches just like here today as well. But everywhere Paul went, these Judaizers would follow shortly after, and they would come into the church to these Gentiles rejoicing in the freeness of the gospel they've received, and they would say, oh, that's great, that's glad you're happy about that, Jesus, for sure, death on the cross, wonderful thing. But Paul maybe forgot to mention one other thing, which is now you need to basically become a Jew, because that's God's people, always has been, so If you're going to be saved, you need to become a Jew, which you do by being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. Those were the Judaizers. Acts chapter 15 shows us probably the first encounter that Paul had with this group. It says at the beginning, some men came down from Judea to where Paul was, and they were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved.
best we can tell, these Judaizers are not denying the work of Christ completely, but they're just saying, here's the work of Christ by which you may be saved. Put an and right here. You can be saved by that and something else that you need to do. Faith in Christ and get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. If you do those, you can be saved. That is the false teaching of the Judaizers that Paul is here dealing with. If you read anywhere else in the New Testament, you will see Paul fighting this battle with the Judaizers, the faith plus works people everywhere. Galatians is maybe the clearest example because the church in Galatia had given in or almost given in to the false teaching of the Judaizers. So he'll say things to them like this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, like they're trying to get you to do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law because that's a sign that gets you in the old covenant to keep the law of that covenant. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified, that means made right with God, by the law and the law. You have fallen away from grace. And then he says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith. Working through love. Here we have a banner. Faith what? Faith alone. That was Paul's fight. That was the core of his fight against the Judaizers as well. The Judaizers were great with faith. But it was the idea of faith by itself that you can be right with God. That's why the good news is good news. You don't have to work for it. You trust. That's faith. But the Judaizers came and said, oh, that's great. But if you tell people that, they'll just do whatever they want. So put the and and tell them you also got to behave yourself by keeping this law. And if you do faith and works together, then you're right before God. Paul says, you, you put the and there and stick whatever you want over there, you are cut off from Christ because it's faith alone that connects us to Christ. And Christ will not have it any other way. You can see in verse 3 that Paul will contrast himself and say, look, we put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying that because the Judaizers put confidence in the flesh. They put confidence for salvation in these and things. And these and things for them with the law of Moses and circumcision are performed in the flesh by human hands. These are outward, physical, ceremonial, ritualistic acts. And the Judaizers say if you just do this act, then it's going to help you be saved. Their trust is in their body, literally, in the flesh, in what we can do, the arm of flesh, what I can do. And Paul says, no, no, no. We put no confidence there. But these false teachers did. They put confidence in the flesh. Paul says, we boast in Christ Jesus. But elsewhere he says, these kinds of teachers, they boast in the flesh. And they want you to be circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. See, look how many Jews we made. Their trust is focused there. The rest of chapter 3, we're going to get more into the Judaizers because Paul's going to present himself as an example of someone who could easily have been a Judaizer but he gave it all up for faith alone in Christ. So there's the error that Paul's fighting. There's the what. 
It's the Judaizers. Now, you might wonder somewhat, all this talk about Judaizers is a little confusing, and what relevance could it possibly have for us today? Probably most of you have not encountered someone who said, look, if you keep eating lobster, you're not getting into heaven. You probably haven't. Some of you maybe have. But you probably haven't had someone who brought circumcision and the Old Testament law and said, if you don't keep this to the letter, then you cannot be saved. So if you don't encounter Judaizers, then what benefit is a passage like this for you? It's of immense benefit. God had this written with not just them in mind, but with us in mind. Because although the details of that false teaching, that the and law of Moses might be less prominent today, the and something is as prominent as it's ever been. That is the core of all false teaching in the world. We're saying faith alone in Christ. And like the thief dying on the cross next to Christ, you believe he did nothing. Literally, his hands are pinned, and Christ says, you'll be with me in paradise. How is that possible? He did nothing, no good work, because it's faith alone. But the core of false teaching is that it says faith, usually it will say, that's great, that's fine. Do your faith thing, that's fine. But also there's something else that you have to do that contributes to you being made right with God. The Judaizers did that, but that's still happening today. This is still a relevant thing today. So I was preparing this message, and I was trying really hard to think and talking with people to say, what would be some of the most prominent parallels today that you yourself would encounter? And I think that the most well-known and most likely for you to encounter sort of error that's like the Judaizers today, would be the Roman Catholic Church. Many of you have a background in the Roman Catholic Church, and there are many genuine believers within the Roman Catholic Church. But when you look at the official teachings of the church, those who are believers within the church, it's not because of the official teachings, but it's amazingly because of the power of God despite the official teachings of the church. Roman Catholicism gets very complex, and we won't go into every part of it, but this is, at essence, what it does. It has no problem with faith whatsoever. Loves faith. Faith is great. By faith, you can be right with God if and only if you add something else, some external work that you must do. In this case, it's not the law of Moses, but it's the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. These would include things like mass and confession and last rites. But as you do these external acts, then grace is infused into you. It comes and, as it were, supplements your faith. And it's those streams coming together that in the end can produce salvation for you. It's part of why Roman Catholics do not and really cannot have an assurance of salvation unless you become a saint, which is very unlikely, it's because there's this stream of works and you don't know if you've done enough. It's not faith alone, it's faith and something else. What the reformers were fighting in the 16th century when they broke away from the very powerful Catholic Church of that day is the same thing that we interact with today. There are many who would like to say, well, we're Protestants, we're not Catholic, and, but basically, we're the same as Roman Catholic, just a few minor theological hair splittings, and that's it. 
And Paul would say, no, no. This is where we differ, here at the very heart. Is it faith only, faith alone, or is it faith and works? So that you know I'm not making things up and just trying to slander or be cruel or something like that. Again, joy is our goal, okay? We're not just being critical. But take, for example, official teachings of the church that were made in reaction to the Reformation. This is at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And at that council, there were several anathemas given. And an anathema means you are cursed if you qualify, if you believe what we say here. Then you're cursed, serious, and you get excommunicated from the church and likely from salvation. In the Council of Trent, still standing as official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, Canon number nine, the infamous, infamous canon, says this. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone. Uh-oh. There we are. But if anyone says that, meaning, and I appreciate that they clarify, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, if you deny this joining of streams of faith and works, it says, let him be anathema. Here's canon number 24 from the same council. If anyone says that justice, meaning justification before God, being right with God, if you say that being made right with God is that justification is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification. In other words, what we say, that the works come afterward, they flow out of faith. If you say they're not, those works are not the cause of increasing your justification with God, let him be anathema. Any religious system, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, Catholic or something else, any religious system, Christian, non-Christian, anything, that adds in works to faith in Christ is a false teaching of the nature of the Judaizers. Same precise principle. So you see it, obviously, in Roman Catholicism, but you see it at so many other places. You see it within Protestantism a lot as well, so let's not just poke at people. So within mainline, common, nominal, nominal Christianity today, if you come to someone, they go to church regularly and they're upstanding persons, and you ask them, how do you know you're going to get into heaven? They say, well, I've done enough good and it outweighs my bad. Judaizers, what else do you call that? What are you doing? How do you know you're right with God? Well, I've done enough good works. Enough good works. Here it is. Bring it in. You say, do you have to believe in Jesus? For sure. There's faith. But you bring them together. And what's implied is if you don't do enough good works, you can't be saved. What Paul says to you, brothers and sisters, look out. Look out. That's everywhere. That's everywhere around you is the desire to bring good works in. And of course we are aware that 
When you've truly believed in Christ by faith alone, there is a work that God does inside of you to change you so fundamentally that now you start to do great good works all the time. It's God's work in you. We saw that to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's happening. So we're not trying to minimize good works. We're not saying stop doing good works or you might be a false teacher. No, do good works. Do lots of them. Do them all the time. But when you do good works, don't put them right there. Get No, stop. Put them away. Faith alone. When you think of the, these five things, and these were born out of the Reformation, but they're helpful in thinking about what Paul's saying here. If you ask for yourself or someone else, the most important question, how can I know how to be saved from the wrath of God so when I die, I'm in his arms? How can I know? Do you have to go search the world's religions? No. Do you have to go read a million books? Do you have to just happen to stumble upon it? Listen, Scripture by itself. You don't need anything added, including councils and decrees. You don't need it. Right there, it will tell you how to be made right with God. You say, wow, that's amazing. Well, who's responsible for me being saved in this amazing salvation? There's only one person. Christ alone. Get away. You don't have to be a part of that. He did the work 2,000 years ago on the cross. You you're not, you don't have to go on the cross. You are not responsible for affecting salvation in yourself. You don't get the credit for it. Sorry. It's Christ by himself. It's Christ alone. Say, so, wow. Well, that's 2,000 years ago. Well, man, how is this salvation given today? By grace alone. Freely. Nobody's obligating God. You don't say, God, you have to. No. God, by grace, freely gives this salvation that his son worked and that he tells you about here. Wow, that's amazing. How do I get that? By faith alone. You believe. That's why the good news is good news. And when you add works in, then it's bad news because you can't do the works well enough. It's good because by trusting truly in Christ, in the person of the heart, you get an eternal salvation by works faith alone. And if salvation's really like that and you're not the one working for it, who do you think gets the credit? To the glory of God alone. By grace you've been saved, says Paul. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It is not a result of work so that no one may boast. So when the Judaizers of today come to you and say, listen, you believe in Christ? Wow, that's so great. But are you doing enough? You know, are you... Are you keeping the sacraments of the church? Are you keeping these extra rules that will make sure you're really holy? Can't be saved without that. It is faith alone. And the works follow. You can look at your works and say, does this show evidence that I have faith? That's fair. But never bring the, the works in to add to your faith for salvation. There's no merit in it. So this leads us then from the what... Judaizers, which there are those today as well, that Paul is saying, look out for, don't sleep, to why he's telling us to look out for these false teachers. So let's shift over then to that. Paul is not calling out these dogs with this very strong language just because he's annoyed. 
driving and someone cuts you off and you honk, not for the sake of justice, you're honking because you're so personally annoyed. That's not Paul here. Paul uses strong language against these false teachers because he feels strongly about it because it's an immense danger. That's what he says. This is safe for you. And so even though it's technically it's some trouble for him, he has to write it. He says, but it's really like no trouble for me. I'd rather write this so you could be safe. He says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. It's not a trouble to me. It's safe for you. So look out. Notice too in verse one, there's no transitional word between the first and the second parts there. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Wow. And now let's talk about false teaching. There's not even an and. He just goes straight from one to the other, even into verse two. Look out. There's no and. There's no connecting there. So the finally transitions us, and this is all connected. This rejoice in the Lord and then the writing about false teaching. At the very least, what that tells you is in Paul's mind, he doesn't have a problem connecting the great theme of joy in his book and his warnings against false teaching. Truth, fight the false teaching, goes together with joy. And he says, this is safe for you. Why is he writing about it? To protect you. To protect you from what? Well, ultimately from being lost by fully following false teachers. But there's something else here too. If you follow false teachers of any stripe, even if it's not to the degree that you are not a believer, let's say you are elect to lead astray, even the elect if possible, you are elect and you're starting to lean over into some kind of added works or something else. You can't fully rejoice in the Lord because notice the rejoicing. What kind of rejoicing is it? Rejoice in your car? Rejoice in the good circumstances of your life? Rejoice that everything's going pretty well for you? Rejoice in the Lord. And false teaching comes as a wedge, always to try to pull you away from Christ. That's the goal. True teaching is Christ alone. False teaching starts adding things on, throwing pile on the laundry pile, throwing clothes, 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 till you bury what's at the bottom. That's what false teaching does. It adds, it adds, until the accretions cover up the core thing. It's always this way. Your rejoicing as a Christian is in the Lord. And that is not different than Paul fighting false teaching. <laughs> because false teaching will take away your joy. So if we're asking why Paul is writing this, among other things, here's a motivation for him. He cares about your joy. He wants you to enjoy your walk with Christ. And not just get by, but really enjoy it. That's what he said to the Galatians. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. It separates you from Christ. And even if you're not severed from him, it always lessens your view. You start to squint. It's like you're sweating and you're squinting and you're barely seeing Christ now. That's what false teaching does. Every false teacher fits around this mold that Peter wrote about in his second letter. They promise freedom, he says, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. False teaching always brings you in like bait, which I guess fish think smell and taste great or whatever, but you stick it on the hook there and the fish can't resist it. But once you bite, it has you and it's not a fun experience, as any fish can attest. And that is the way that false teaching is as well. It lures you in. It promises you freedom. It promises you something. But once it has you, it pulls you away from Christ. If you want real joy in your Christian walk, 
The key thing is that you cling to Christ. The more you see Christ, the more you love Christ, the more you know Christ, the higher and higher your experience is within your Christian life. So if you're feeling little joy, your primary problem is you're having little sights of Christ. And false teaching comes in as dark clouds to obscure your views of Christ. That's why you look out. Notice verse 3. He says, this is what you really are, okay? Because you'll forget it in false teaching. But this is what you are. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Now we believe that God has a future for the nation of Israel. Romans 9-11 through 11 talks about this and elsewhere. Revelation 20. We believe that there is a place for ethnic Israel and there will be a mass conversion of them in the end times. So we're not denying any of that. But we don't have to deny that to say that the way that Paul's using circumcision here in writing to Gentiles is to say, we are the true circumcision. He says this in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who's just one outwardly, and circumcision isn't just outward and physical, it's of the heart. Paul says, that's us. We've been circumcised in the heart, an internal change. And so we worship by the Spirit of God, not relying on ourselves, but God's Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen, as we end this, you have to decide what your life's going to look like for everyone here. And you have a choice. You are either going to live your life glorying in and putting confidence in Christ every day, every moment, or one way or another, false teaching or whatever, you are going to glory in, relish, place your confidence in yourself, the flesh. You are made of flesh, putting it in yourself. Those are your two options. There's the true teaching that places it fully in Christ, and then there's the all sorts of false teaching that distracts us from Christ and ultimately puts it upon ourselves. What you do, your work, you follow sacraments, you work harder, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You can only focus on one of those. You can only live your life completely cast upon one of those for your eternal salvation. One day, all of us, you, me, all of us will sit, stand there, kneel before Christ, and He will pass judgment. And it's those who have placed their confidence and glory fully in Christ. His work alone, His word alone, His grace alone, Him alone, to His glory alone. It's those who have done that without adding this stuff, who've looked fully to Him. Those poor paupers, those poor sinners, those beggars are the ones who receive grace, who receive salvation. And anyone who's trying to add on even nice, good works, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. This is dead serious for your life. And as Paul says, this is dead serious for your joy. Brothers and sisters, salvation is free. I don't care what anybody tells you. You shouldn't care what anybody tells you contrary. If an angel from heaven, forget it. If there are anathemas upon you, who cares? You are right with God. Not because of how well you've done this week, praise God, but because your faith is in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've granted us this great salvation, more immense than any of us can imagine, and you've done it 
at a greater cost than any of us could ever guess, the very blood of your son. But because of that, it's absolutely at no cost to us. I pray for those who are here who have bought into any sort of false view of salvation, whether that be an alternate system like Catholicism or whether that just be trying to work hard enough to win God's love, I pray that we all would bow our knees before your word, which tells us that this salvation is grace and it's freely given us by faith. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ, author and perfecter of our faith, and run this race with our eyes on him always and to rest in the salvation we have in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.